0: Here we go, we have part three of the five part Barky Lungy series. So if you haven't already heard parts one and two, I recommend checking those out first. Today, the topic is gonna be the second prong in my three-pronged approach to dealing with um, specifically dog-directed Barky Lungy stuff, AKA leash reactivity. Um, which is remedial socialization. Remedial socialization is just as it sounds. It is socialization done kind of after the fact. So we think of socialization as something that is done for puppies. We think of it as something that can only happen to puppies. And that's not entirely true. It is true that dogs are more susceptible to kind of social learning um, as far as how to act in social groups when they're young but dogs are a social species and you'd be amazed what they can learn uh later on in life from other dogs and you'd be amazed how much sociability can actually be gained after puppyhood certainly it is ideal to do all your socialization up front to do a lot of good work on your puppies I do have an episode, a couple of episodes about that specifically. So we're not talking about puppies today. We're talking about teaching an adult dog who is missing some good social skills, those social skills. So what I need is a dog that is functionally social to other dogs. And I'm going to define that because that's kind of a term that I use that I'm not sure if anybody else is using. So... When I say functional sociability, what I mean is a dog that can handle another dog approaching on a trail, can handle another dog walking past them, either on a path or across the street um, on a leash. And when I say can handle, I mean that they do not overreact to that situation. Because when we say reactive, what we mean is overreactive so I the dog is allowed to react and respond certainly but what I want is for the dog to not overreact or over respond meaning the dog can kind of say hi bye and then move on with its life I do not want a dog that is straining at the leash desperately wanting to get to the other dog um I don't want a dog that is terrified if the other dog runs up tucks its tail tries to hide behind mom I want a dog that can just kind of roll with novel dog to dog greetings. The more functionally social they are, the more they can deal with the coarse social skills of others as well. It might help you to think about people in this regard. I think we've all met people who we thought had poor or coarse social skills, for sure. I've met people that I thought were kind of painfully shy. Um... And, and I've met people that I thought were way too abrasive and forward um, and loud, right? So dogs are going to run this range of social behaviors as well. And a dog that is functionally social is able to deal with those things without becoming violent or running away for the hills, right? So um functionally social is what we're after. And here's the bad news. We can't teach them this. Other dogs are who teaches them this. Experience and exposure to a variety of different dogs is how they learn this. Now, it certainly is important for our dogs to have mostly positive experiences with other dogs, especially when they're young, And especially when they're in this kind of remedial socialization um, process. But truthfully, that's not always going to be the case. A hundred percent positive is pretty much impossible. What I want instead for a dog to have such a rich and varied social history that he knows he can handle himself no matter what happens. And he doesn't need to become unnecessarily violent or unnecessarily frightened. So if um, I'm going to think back to, I'm going to talk a lot about my dog Iggy in this episode. So I'm going to think back to a moment that I had with her where I was walking, um, she and my other dog off leash in a field and it was snowing. And this is somewhere that we walked all the time. We lived nearby and suddenly out of nowhere, someone's dog came charging at us through the snow. And I didn't even see a person attached to this dog at first. She kind of came out of the woodwork. She was there, but, um, I was walking her with my older dog, Kelso, who was, as I've mentioned before, severely dog aggressive. So, and she was young. She was probably, um, six months old at the time. And I turned, so I turned to handle Kelso so that he didn't attack this dog that was incoming. And as I did so, the dog frightened Digi and she sprinted off into the snowstorm. Um, she ran across two lanes of traffic and ran all the way back to my house, which was probably, um, a half a mile away from where we were. And here's the problem. She wasn't prepared for that moment. That dog scared her in a big way, even though the dog's mannerisms were normal, social and friendly. And at the time, this was a long time ago, she was six months old and she's 11 years old now. So at the time I was furious with this woman for allowing her dog to approach mine. Um, And... You, you can still be furious about that if you want to, but it's not going to help anybody. It's not going to help you get better. Um, it's not going to help the dogs get better. And I just, I'm lucky that Iggy made it through that. She was waiting for me on my porch when I got back. I proceeded to have a full-blown meltdown as soon as I got home. Um, and, you know, we all survived it, but being angry and my anger at that woman actually didn't help anybody in the situation and only made the situation arguably worse um, for me and for my dogs. So that's not functionally social. That's a dog that is terrified of a friendly, um, normal dog showing up. That dog was coming over to invite play. I would say that dog was a little bit over the top in his friendliness, but he was non-aggressive and really not out of the ordinary in any way, shape, or form. So for her to put her own self in potential harm's way to get away from this dog, that's this kind of that's a biological issue. That's something that shouldn't be hardwired in there, shouldn't shouldn't be shouldn't be something that lasts into adulthood, we hope. Uh, But it certainly could have and it just kind of exacerbated the other issues that I was having with her because if you recall, as I said in previous episode, at four months of age, she decided that she was afraid of other dogs and that she would bark lunge at them, even though her social experiences up to that point were rich and varied. I mean, hundreds, you guys, upon hundreds of novel dog greetings that she had had at that point, which is why, again, I'm going to say socialization, it's important, but it's not everything genetics matter too. So they learn this best from other dogs, not from us. And that's unfortunate, but the, that's just the truth. And Iggy today is the most socially savvy dog. Um, one of the most socially savvy dogs in my household and definitely one of the most socially savvy dogs I think I ever hope to have. Um, because Border Collies as a breed, which is my breed, um, not known for being socially great a lot of the time, And I think a lot of that is just that we've got this dog park and dog daycare culture that they don't really fit into, but they can be really um, socially smart and savvy. So fast forward today, I was walking my dogs on a trail, Iggy included. We were um, bombarded by a couple of off-leash cattle dogs whose owners were riding on horses. And so they were a decent distance behind the dogs and making no effort to call the dogs back. These dogs were socially appropriate, though, which I was thrilled with. And everybody said hi, and everybody moved on with their lives. And it was very quick, hi, bye, and moving on. And Iggy is fully capable of that now, and it does not frighten her to an extreme level when those dogs show up. Um, And it's incredible. And this is through helping her have positive remedial socialization experiences. I did that with her specifically by integrating her into group hikes with friends whose dogs I know and also by allowing my friendly dog Felix to be a buffer between she and any dog that might approach us on a trail. So that was kind of a tipping point for her was having a buffer of a dog that is socially normal. I had to teach myself to breathe and relax when these moments occurred. When an off-leash dog came running down the trail, I used to really freak out. I used to yell. I used to yell at the owner to call their dog. I might throw something at the dog. I mean, you guys, I was a mess um, because of my past experiences. I had to teach myself to breathe. And I now say this ridiculous. I just say, it's a friend to my dogs. Just like that. When I know a greeting is inevitable because that means go say hi to the other dog. So I go, it's a friend. Oh, my dogs are going to come running in because they're like, what friend? Oh my gosh, Felix is coming in to find the friend. Um, sorry, buddy. There's nobody here. Um, <laughs> good boy. So, and then Iggy was able to just stay with me while Felix said, hello, how are you? To every dog that we met on the trail. Now, you may not have that luxury and that's okay. What I would encourage you to do instead is to find friends whose dogs are socially savvy and go on outings with those dogs and if you need your dog that's learning to be on a leash or in a muzzle during your initial walks with these dogs then that's perfectly fine perfectly fine Mm -hmm. something that i will do frequently is i'll muzzle the kind of troublesome dog or the dog that struggles with other dogs and I'll get a big enough group that the savvy dogs that I'm kind of using to my advantage um don't need to fixate on the dog in a muzzle and then we all get turned loose into a very interesting um area so either a field or a trail or maybe a beach so that the dogs are not fixated on each other they're fixated on the activity and each other is just kind of a after note it's just you know it's just there and what i watch is the dog that is in the remedial socialization phase and i watch that dog start to learn from the dogs that i've selected for him to be around and so here's some of the things they're going to learn felix no one needs your input come here it's felix giving his input um (laughs) <laughs> he's typically not the one, but I said that phrase and now he's all in a twist. Um, and so I watch that dog and I watch that dog grow and learn cutoff signals from other dogs. So maybe your barky lungy dog is actually just over the top, ridiculous friendly. I watch that dog start to learn cutoff signals from the other dogs. Also, if that is your dog understand the very savvy dogs are going to do what I'm going to call correct him. So they may put their teeth on him and they may, um, show some aggressive behaviors towards him. And you gotta let all that roll because that's all normal dog communication. All of it's normal dog communication, snarling, snapping, growling, uh, turning away, stiffening up. All of those are normal part of normal dog communication. Here's what's not normal dog communication. I pull a knife on you. I throw you to the ground and I threaten to stab you in the throat or I do stab you in the throat, right? This is not normal for humans and it's also not normal for dogs, but what is normal for humans is a person touches you inappropriately in a bar and you slap them. That's appropriate. They were inappropriate. The slapping is fine. Um, notice I didn't say stab them with a knife. I may recommend that at a later date, but. We're not talking about people. Um, with dogs though, understand that the wide range of normal canine social behavior will be playing out in front of you and you have to roll with it. If you panic and you intervene too much and you jump in there, you will ruin it because you will destroy the the savvy dog's ability to teach the dog that is learning if you inhibit what you want them to do, which is why, again, you got to pick your dogs wisely, right? But here's my, this is my qualifier. Have you ever put a hole in another dog? Great. And have you had altercations with other dogs? Okay. Mm. So if the dog has had some altercations or maybe just like very, very brief scuffles or conversations over a bone or, you know, something like that, but there's never been an injury, then I'm in. You're here because the other thing that we tend to know, and this is not across the border, a hundred percent, but generally speaking, if the dogs, if the dogs had altercations and, and has never hurt anyone, they're probably pretty safe. You can put a muzzle on every single dog involved if that makes you feel better. And I certainly have done that with clients. Um, but understand again, that what I would like the dog to learn is that when another dog says stop it leave me alone in a non-violent manner they listen and they back off that's what they learn first then because they know that then the savvy dog will engage in their play invitations so a lot of times these dogs like if we got the -the over-the-top friendly type of barky lungy their play invitations are going to be more like play demands and they will be ignored by savvy dogs or corrected by savvy dogs Once the savvy dog starts to go, yeah, you're not so bad. You're learning a few things. Okay, I'll oblige you a little bit. Now I'm seeing things really start to change. And you guys, this can be the ticket for so many dogs. And it is the hardest thing to carry out that I'm going to tell you to do. Because it's logistically the hardest thing. But I promise you that there are more dogs in your community that can help you with this than you're aware of. Um, And sometimes we might start out with our Barky Lungy dog on a long line, a harness, and a muzzle in a big open field, and the other dog is also on a long line, and we're just parallel walking until nobody cares about each other. And you will see at some point your Barky Lungy dog choose to sniff the ground and approach with soft eyes and maybe wag a tail at the other dog. You will see this start to happen because... They are actually a social species. They are, most breeds are actually designed to be able to roll with novel dog interactions. If you have a breed that isn't designed for that, then you want to check your expectations and that's okay. But most of the dogs that come through my program are not actually one of those breeds. Most of them are just under socialized. Um... Lots of Border Collies, lots of Shelties and even Goldens that come through my program um, that are just they're just flat out under socialized. That's all it is. And they need that remedial socialization experience. This would be best with some video. So I am going to be posting a little bit of video um, on the Patreon page. So if you are a patron, you'll get access to more information for these podcasts because I am going to put video out. But generally speaking, when it comes to remedial socialization, I am watching my barky lungy dog start to act quote unquote normal. I'm watching my barky lungy dog start to reach out an olive branch to the other dog and say, Hey, maybe we could be friends or maybe we could just mutually sniff the same flower and then, and then keep walking. And I'm learning as I go, what kind of dogs my barky lungy dog likes because they'll extend more olive branches, sniff the same flower more often, choose to be a little bit closer to that other dog. And I'm learning which dogs my barky lungy dog does not like. Iggy still has very strong preferences about dogs um, and who her dog friends are going to be, but she can pretty much handle any dog that is acting non-violent on a trail and most dogs that you meet are going to be acting non-violent what happens is though that they may be acting socially inappropriate in other ways and she can tolerate that now whereas it used to really scare her um like in the example of the dog approaching us in the snowstorm So that's it for remedial socialization. I do hope you'll join us over on Patreon so that I can um, show you some more video footage of this so that you can see kind of what I'm talking about. And I will also share some video of just normal dog behavior, just normal dog-dog interactions on trails and things like that. And I also recommend picking up some kind of resource if you're not certain um, on the dog body language piece, Brenda Aloff's book, um, which I think is just called Dog Body Language, And then, let's see, um, Roger Abrantes also has a book, I think it's called Dog Language, and then there's tons and tons of videos on YouTube as well if you just search for dog body language. If you find yourself really, really nervous about these interactions because of your previous history with this dog or other dogs, education is the best kind of remedy for that if you educate yourself enough on dog body language that you can breathe and trust that everything that's happening in front of you is normal it'll also really really help you out all right here's some patreon questions for you this one comes from tina she says hi i'd like to hear your thoughts on multi-clicking as a marker something that i see quite a bit in agility training here in europe Clicking a correct weave entry and continuing to click while the dog weaves is the big one, but in general, it seems to be used to mark the dog doing something really good, but that the reward isn't coming until the end of the obstacle or sequence. So not necessarily continuously clicking the whole time. I'm told it's exciting for the dogs, but it's not something I've I've ever done, although I do frequently verbally mark a correct weave entry or a good contact hit. Do you think you risk losing the power of the clicker in its traditional capacity? Do you think it's clearer for the dog as a marker for doing something super great than just more cookies or a better play session? Do you think it's more effective than just saying yes, super weaves super while my dog weaves? Is click equals good, so therefore more clicking equals better? Good log, good logic. Tina. Thanks for your question. Um, this is something that's recently come to my attention in the States also. It's a question that I'm being asked a lot. Um, so I'm not really sure where this came from. I'm not even sure if it's new, but um, first we have to talk about the fundamental misunderstanding that's going on here if people are clicking multiple times or clicking and not and then not reinforcing. Um, the fundamental misunderstanding is that the click or the marker tells the dog they're right or tells the dog they're good. That's not the job of the bridge. That's not the job of the event marker. The job of the marker is to inform the learner that they have gained access to reinforcement. That is why the marker aids us in in building behaviors that we like. It does not aid us in building those behaviors because it tells our learner that they're good or that they did something good. It tells them to take reinforcement. So that means if I'm clicking or verbally marking and not delivering reinforcement, then I am essentially breaching the contract. I'm saying, yes, I've told you that this means take reinforcement in the past, but the rules have now changed. Um, you certainly, to answer your question, will dull the power of your marker by doing so. Or you may simply teach your dog that in some context, the marker means nothing to them. If these things, the marking, either with a clicker or verbally, appear to influence behavior in a positive sense, meaning that, when you do it, you get more frequent, correct weave, pull entries, etc., like that. First of all, I challenge you to take the data um, because I'm not sure that you're right. We like praising and we like marking. So you may be misinterpreting your own just kind of enjoyment of that process. But, and I'm going to, I actually have a full episode planned on this, often when we mark the dog mid-run with a yes or good or super or whatever, um, or even with a clicker if we're training that way. And that appears to be effective for us. Usually what happens is, you know, if we're not following that up with a reinforcer, so we're just doing that and then continuing to run, what it is actually indicating to the dog is lack of correction. So what it's actually telling the dog is, I'm not going to stop you and make you do that again. And that is why it appears to be having that positive effect because now you're in a negative reinforcement realm and the dog is going to continue to push forward with those behaviors because of the relief he feels when he hears that marker signal, which means, which signals to him absence of correction. Whole podcast coming up on that. Thank you so much for your question, Tina. Next one comes from Kristen. She says, small dog training question. I understand that it is not fair to use meals for training reinforcement, but I am really struggling to balance out reinforcement throughout the day while also not overfeeding my six-pound puppy. Is this even possible with small dogs? So in my opinion, it's not about it being unethical to use meals. It is unethical to withhold meals unless the dog works. I try to utilize as much of my dog's daily caloric intake needs as I can for my purposes. My dogs eat, um, I I would say about half their calories come from actual meals I feed them and the other half probably come from training. So I'm really careful about what, uh, what treats I use, um, in that, in, you know, in training because... I want those treats to matter as far as my dog's daily nutrition is concerned. So I absolutely would, Kristen, measure out the amount of food the dog requires and utilize as much of it as possible in training and then kind of feed what is left. Um, and then I'm gonna go ahead and throw this question in because it tags along nicely to yours, Kristen. This is from Laura, who says, here's the question, if you feed a raw diet, What do you use for training treats? And the second question, if raw is fed PM and kibble AM, does that set the dog up for digestive problems? Um, She kind of goes on to talk about her own experience, but I will answer the second question first. I'm technically not qualified to answer that question, but in my experience, my dogs switch between kibble and raw without any problems and the veterinarians that I know and work with who also support raw feeding say the same thing. So I think it's kind of a an old wives' tale that kibble and raw cannot go together. And then I do feed a primarily raw diet, so what do I use for training treats? My dogs eat a raw meat and organ and bone mix in the evenings as their primary meal. They also usually get a stuffed frozen Kong, which tends to contain primarily canned fish and dairy so I know sounds delicious yogurt cottage cheese and canned mackerel is kind of the base and then I might add some things to that so what do I feed for treats I feed freeze-dried raw nuggets for treats a lot Um, I love the vital essentials brand because it's just meat and nothing else um but the Stella and Chewy's raw freeze-dried raw nuggets are fantastic too I try to go for things that are not too terribly crumbly. Ziwi Peak is great so that's an air dried food with really great high quality ingredients. Um, I'm not sponsored by any of these people but I do want to help you guys out. So um, I'm also into recently using the Honest Kitchen kibble which is a new kibble um, as treats and then I use Carnivore kibble as treats as well. So I kind of rotate through different kibbles, different freeze-dried raws um, for for treats and then to that I will add kind of human leftovers from my life. So if I've got some cheese that needs to get used up because we're growing out of town, I will use that. Um, maybe some rotisserie chicken, salmon, you know, anything anything that's around that's kind of leftover that needs to be used up, I will use. And then if I need something that packs a big punch, that's where I usually go for those kind of quote-unquote human food types of things. So Thanks, you guys, so much for your questions. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDog Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash CogDogRadio to become a patron.